Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I would like you to think about your 16-year-old self, where you were, what you were doing, who you were with, who you were. I was in high school in Shadron, Nebraska. I was a volleyball player, a straight-A student. I was in swing choir. I was in church every Sunday with my family. And I was pregnant. It was the result of getting drunk at a party at the wrong house with the wrong boy. And as soon as I woke up on the couch there half undressed and all alone, I knew that my life had been irreparably changed. I was very quickly going to go from being the perfect girl to being the bad girl. A lot of people in my small town seem to enjoy it. You can imagine the gossip, right? Kids whispered in class. Some of them yelled and screamed and shoved me in the hallways. There were notes reading, baby killer, taped to my locker. I wanted to die. I didn't. Instead, I put one foot in front of the other and started making the difficult decisions I had to make because what choice did I have? I ended up deciding to keep the pregnancy and find a family to raise my baby. But I really didn't know how to do that. I mean, how does one go about finding parents for your unborn child? Plus, I wanted to meet and interview people. You have to keep in mind, it was 1990, and the concept of open adoption was unheard of. Before too long, I was looking through adoptive parent profiles, and back then, they were just plain manila folders filled with a picture and a one-sheeter. Information like career, hobbies, religions, I flipped through them one after the other, after the other, after the other, and none of them seemed right. As I was going through this process, one day my English teacher called our house and wanted to talk to my mom. It freaked me out. Because get this, I may have been in trouble, but I didn't get in trouble at school. <laughs> it turned out Mrs. Stitt wanted to know if I would look at her daughter and son-in-law's profile. I said, why not? The perfect one handed, hadn't landed in my lap yet. And then it did. I didn't have to read a word about them. I opened their manila folder and I saw their picture, Kathy, Mike, their daughter, Annie, and I just knew. These were the people. This was my baby's family. And when we met a few weeks later, that feeling was confirmed. 
still nothing can prepare you for giving your child away to someone else. And for me, that process was interrupted because when my baby was born, he wasn't breathing. So he was whisked away to a hospital 90 miles away. And after all of the drama surrounding my pregnancy, I thought, really? It ends like this? There was a very good chance my baby was going to die. He didn't. David was in the NICU for 10 days, surrounded by his entire family. Me, my parents, his parents, his big sister, his grandparents, we were all there together during what was a terrifying time. It forged a relationship among us that we never could have imagined. The day that David was released from the hospital was bittersweet for me. I, of course, was relieved that he was okay, but I was scared because I knew what was coming next. I knew he was going home with them and not me. And when that happened, the grief was overwhelming. It was physical and debilitating. I spent days sobbing in my room. I'd sit in the bathtub with my hands over my now deflated stomach, missing the child that had lived there for nine months. I wanted to die. I didn't. Instead, a couple of weeks later, I went to volleyball practice. No shit. <laughs> a couple weeks after that, school started. And I just tried to act like nothing had happened. Because what I could not admit to myself, especially not to anybody else, was that the very essence of who I was had changed. A decade later, I'm dating the guy I know I want to marry. But having kids was the furthest thing from my mind. I'd continued to see David on a regular basis his whole life. And frankly, I was still grieving that loss. And one of the ways I had coped with it was by pouring myself into my work. And it worked out pretty great because this guy was wired the same way. And we obviously knew I was fertile Myrtle. So even though we talked about the fact that we wanted kids someday, there was no rush, right? Wrong. Oh boy, were we wrong. We had no idea how wrong until years later. When doctors told Michael and I that it would take medical intervention for us to get pregnant, at first, we just viewed it like an assignment. Because you see, we're doers. If you give us an assignment, we will do it and do it well. So 
that's how we were tackling infertility. Forcefully, fiercely, super focused, do the assignment. But you see, infertility doesn't care how smart or talented or driven you are. It is a big fat no to your desire to become parents. Every month I would beg and plead, please, God, please, 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 let this be the month. And every month I ended up in a bathroom somewhere holding a tampon, sobbing. At first, the treatments we went through really weren't that bad. I mean, they were inconvenient. Oh, they were super humiliating. I mean, I don't think anyone enjoys masturbating into a cup <laughs> or lying spread eagle on a table in front of strangers. But we were just doing what we had to do. When the basics didn't work, I started popping pills. Hormones that made me even crazier than I already was. <laughs> I was a real treat to be around. And then it got better. Shots with these teeny tiny needles in my belly. At specific times, every morning and night, they felt like bee stings. And they left me red and bruised and ironically so swollen that I actually looked pregnant. Nothing worked. So IVF is the next thing. It's the most invasive and expensive infertility treatment there is. We'd already dumped a ton of money by this point in time. But I was obsessed. And there was no way Michael was telling me no. Because I was crazy. When you graduate, if you will, to this treatment, you also move on to some serious shots, big needles, that someone has to stick in your butt. And have I mentioned that my husband is terrified of needles? It meant that we recruited our friend Sonia to, you know who I'm talking about. She kind of liked it. <laughs> she came over faithfully every morning and stabbed those huge needles into my rear end. She was a champ. But that didn't last very long because our embryos sitting in a petri dish in a lab stopped growing. And again, I wanted to die. But instead, we tried again and again. And then I became adept at wielding those huge needles myself, and I was shooting up everywhere. In the dressing room at work, in a hotel when we were on vacation, in the bathroom at a local country club where I was giving a speech. And every time it didn't work, I died 
a little bit more inside. I became more panicked, bitter, angry, resentful, jealous, and more closed off from the people who loved me the most. My therapy became what I like to call the three W's. Work, workouts, wine. <laughs> Lots of wine. So by this point in time, Michael and I had some really serious decisions to make. I mean, we had been trying to have kids for nearly 10 years. We were drained emotionally, physically, financially, and it was taking a huge toll on our marriage, really on our entire life. But I was not ready to give up quite yet. Crazy. So we decided to try one more time. It's really tough to explain all of the emotions that surround a round of infertility treatment. And of course, it's different for everybody. But for us, it was this weird mix of anticipation and dread and excitement and fear and hope. You're so wound up. But you're going to yoga and getting acupuncture and practicing deep breathing and drinking the herbal tea and trying to chill the out. <laughs> because that's what everybody tells you you should do. And you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> it is really so weird. It's such a weird thing for anyone to go through. But it was made even more so by my weird job in TV news. <laughs> because no matter what was going on behind the scenes, every night I would shellack my face with makeup, and when that red light came on, I would brightly say, good evening, thanks for joining us. When the nurse from the clinic called me with the results of that last blood test, I had braced myself for bad news. Why wouldn't I, right? When she gave me good news, I sobbed. Tears of joy. Michael and I hooped and hollered and danced around. And then we worried because after so many years of disappointment, it was hard not to. Plus, by this point in time, I was over 40. And doctors have a really nice term for that. Advanced maternal age. <laughs> Here's the upside. It means you get lots of extra monitoring, extra ultrasounds, OK? Every time we got to see baby K, we would ooh and ah as the technician pointed out the head and the rump and the tiny fingers and toes. Each month meant that we were a step closer to the dream that had eluded us for so long. We were asleep the morning that my water broke, about a week before my due date, we shot up out of bed, started running around. I got in the shower. Michael started making me breakfast. <clears throat> then, of course, I started doing my hair and makeup. 
and he's freaking out. Oh my God, what are you doing? We have to get to the hospital. I was like, calm down. Remember, I'd done this before. <laughs> he had not. It was a very deliberate decision to not find out if we were having a boy or a girl. We wanted just one genuine surprise in this wacky infertility journey where you know way more than anyone should ever have to know about how babies are made. But we knew it was a girl. We just knew. We had all these names picked out. You can imagine our surprise when the doctor held up the baby and I looked at it and said, it has testicles. <laughs> <laughs> but even more surprising than our baby girl being a baby boy was the overwhelming emotion I experienced when our nurse placed Michael Francis on my chest for the first time because I was prepared to feel incredible love and joy and relief, but I wasn't prepared for grief. And again, it was physical. I was overwhelmed by it. I was absolutely floored by this feeling of my heart expanding and contracting at the same time. This great feeling of pain and loss. As I was transported back in time 25 years to when my son David came into the world. This child who was mine, but not mine to whom I was a mother, but not a mom. And I think that's really the first time I came to grips with what I had been through as a birth mother. How traumatic unplanned pregnancy had been. How strong I'd been going through it. how much I'd never really acknowledged the sacrifice that I'd made, how I'd faked being okay for so many years, and how all of this had shaped the woman that I'd become.
now I sort of view motherhood as a sort of superpower. For me, it required strength and sacrifice and stubbornness and a willingness to stand up for myself and say exactly what I wanted and what I needed. In that moment, when Michael Francis was born, it was as if something in me broke and was sort of put back together again. I emerged from it this more authentic version of myself. I started writing these crazy essays on social media, <laughs> showing pictures of myself with no makeup and messy hair and cellulite. <laughs> crazy. I started calling out bullies and body shamers. I started to champion people and causes that I believe in, and it was so liberating. It was a, as if I had been reborn. And a few years later, when our daughter, Audrey, was born, I felt all of those same feelings, the love, the joy, the relief, and yes, still the grief. And also that, oh shit, it's a girl. <laughs> for real this time. But I was also stronger and steadier and now exactly sure of who I am. Thank you.